morning. Good morning. Any, uh, any Giants fans in the house? Hey. Hey, did you guys see that game last night? All right. All right. All right. Let's go Oakland. Any Oakland fans in the house? Yeah. <laughs> I planned that out all last night. Um, we are, you know, and let me tell you something about the beauty of Inspired Church. It's, uh, you, it's unity in our diversity, amen? And so even though we got Giants and A's fans, we unify, um, insert cliche right there. Um, but, uh, but anyways, it's 1-1, so I'm sure it's going to be a great game today. What do we got? Is Fran- did France end up taking the World Cup? That was like 4-2, right? And so I, you know, I don't know if there's any France fans in here, but uh, congratulations to you uh, um, and everything else. Man, I'm excited to jump right in this morning. And I'm excited for Motivate Coffee on Wednesday, uh, right? Motivate Coffee. All right. Anyways, uh, just excited about Wednesday. Uh, I know uh, Jeffrey shared a personal story about the speaker who will be coming and presenting on Wednesday that he was his roommate for a year or so. Uh, but he was also my tutor in Greek. And uh, Simon has his master's and he also is a professor. And so um, uh, not only is he a, a man with a lot of knowledge, but he's a man who has, um, who has proven himself in academia. And so uh, if you want to know more about the end times, a lot of times we're scared of the end times. Can I just say this? We're scared of the end times because we're scared of what we don't know. And so um, I have a feeling, in fact, I kind of know that on Wednesday, a lot of these fears will be debunked and there'll actually be an excitement and a hope for what God is going to do. It's a beautiful thing. So please make sure you're here. I know Jeffrey already said it, but I'm just so excited. I want to say it again. Um, And so this morning, we are going to continue in our Kingdom Come series. And if you remember last week as part of an introduction, and I'll just kind of recap a little bit uh, this morning before we jump into uh, today's specific topic, um, the Kingdom of God is the central theme of Jesus's life and ministry. Uh, Unfortunately, the kingdom of God is probably one of the most overlooked and misunderstood subjects, I think, to a lot of Christians. Now, in the next couple of weeks, um, we're going to barely scratch the surface of the subject, but I hope, and it's my hope that as a church, that we're going to continue to come back to the kingdom um, as the years progress. Um, And it's also my hope that you and I as disciples Um, would be inspired to continue to grow in our understanding of the kingdom of God. Um, I was actually so excited. I was encouraged uh, this week. I got a text from my sister April, and she was letting me know that, um, uh, I believe his family, yeah, Um, uh, sister-in-law, cousin maybe, Um, uh, that was cousin, I believe it is, and and I'm going to get it wrong because she's here today, but was going home, was so inspired that she was actually um, studying the kingdom of God above and beyond. And can I just say that melts my heart? Um, can I just say that that uh, means a lot? And um, what I uh, aspire to do as a pastor here is not just pastor on Sunday morning, but raise up members that are so hungry for the word of God that above and beyond a Sunday, they would dig deeper. And so um, I, that's an inspiration. And so I'm going to hope that um, this would inspire you to dig deeper into the kingdom. Amen. And so, um, uh, la- so last week in our introduction, we talked about the three characteristics of the kingdom of God that we're going to help us uh, continue to progress in this sermon series. And so I'm just going to repeat those three characteristics again because we're constantly going to be looking back to them as we move forward. And so the first characteristic of the kingdom of God is this. Remember, the kingdom of God is a re- it's not a realm, but a reign or a rule, right? It's, the kingdom of God is not a geography. It's, it's not a location, but rather it's a reign or a rule. And that's so important. The second one was this. The kingdom of God refers to God's redemptive purposes, not his total providence. And so we know that he is the king over everything. We know that he's sovereign over everything. Scripture tells us that he had created everything. But when we're talking about the specific subject of the kingdom of God, we're not necessarily talking about his total providence. But what we are talking about is his specific redemptive purposes inside of human history. And finally, number three, uh, and we'll get into this today, the kingdom of God is both now and later. And this is probably one of my favorite things to say uh, regarding the kingdom, Um, but this is probably one of the most important things. Um, Where God's name is hallowed and where his will is joyfully obeyed, his kingdom is. 
Let me say it again. Where God's name is hallowed, where the worship and adoration of the saints are lifting up his name, where his name is glorified, and where his will is joyfully being obeyed, his kingdom is. Amen? And so here's what the next three Sundays will look like. This morning, we'll talk about the mystery of the kingdom of God. And then the following two Sundays, we'll talk about the demonstrations of the kingdom of God. And here's my prayer for Inspired Church and my prayer for all of you this morning. Number one is that you and I would know the king of this kingdom. And some of you may say, well, I already know him, that you would know him deeper and passionately. But that you would know the king of this kingdom. And number two, that we would receive the gospel of this kingdom. And finally, number three is that we would become kingdom people with kingdom vision. And I, and I am going to just, before I pray, I'm going to just say this. When we become a kingdom people with a kingdom vision, uh, we no longer compete, right? We complete one another, right? We no longer uh, compare churches. There are too many silos going on. Well, my church is better than yours. Well, if your church is making the gospel known and lifting up the name of Jesus, then we're on the same team. Amen? Amen? And, it, and, I, and I said this last week, but I want to say it again. It's my heart to raise up disciples in this church that if they stay at this church, that God would use them to move the mission forward. But if they leave, that they would go and be a part of another mission of another church and that they would equally move that mission forward. And I would hope that if you, God ever calls you out, that you wouldn't go to another church and you would compare it to this one. But that you would go to another church saying, look at I am being called on assignment for God's honor and glory. We'd be a kingdom people with a kingdom vision. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have lifted your name up in this room. We have glorified you. And now we are listening to your words. And your will is being done joyfully in this room. And so at Crown Plaza... In Union City, where there used to be no church, there is a church right now. And your kingdom is coming right now. And even as next door, as they gather together in excitement and joy for an event, Lord, I pray that your kingdom, through your kingdom people, um, would just saturate that. Uh, We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, As I was praying, I just was reminded of something that Veronica was telling us during our morning huddle about the kingdom of God. Um, You know, one way we can display the kingdom is when we're leaving the church parking lot today, we're not honking at them because they're in the way. (laughs) Right? That they would know, hey, there's a church filled with the Holy Spirit that's meeting in that place. And that even when we walk in there, if it's too crowded or too busy or gets too loud, that we would still display the kingdom of God. Amen? And I just prayed that. I was thinking, you know, just what a great practical example of us being kingdom people when we leave here. Amen? Okay, let's go. Let's go ahead. We're going to talk about the mystery of the kingdom of God. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to break that entire phrase down into two sections. We're going to talk about mystery. And then once we define mystery, we're going to, we're going to, uh, we're going to put that in partnership with the kingdom of God. And we'll finish by talking about the mystery of the kingdom of God. And so the first question that I have for us this morning is this. What does scripture mean when it uses the word mystery? What does scripture mean when it uses the word mystery? Well, I want to tell you that sometimes when we see the word mystery, it triggers for us the spectacular. It triggers for us uh, something um, that may be um, drawing us into uh, something special. But here's what I want to tell you about what the scripture says about mystery. Um, The mystery is uh, not, not a mystical ritual, but it's simply this. In scripture, mystery simply means God's unfolding plan for the world. God's unfolding plan for the world, specifically God's plan to redeem the world through his Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now, the reason why it's called a mystery is because God has hidden it. The reason why it's called a mystery is because God has kept some of his purposes secret 
on purpose until the time that he is determined to release it. Are you with me? And so the reason why we call something in scripture, the scripture calls something mysterious is because God has on purpose kept it hidden until he has determined the right time to release it. You see, a lot of times uh, uh, um, uh, people will make the mistake of trying to take the word mystery and turn it into something that it's not. And this is dangerous, and this is how in the New Testament uh, many occultic and, and pra uh, practices of heresy were birthed because people were talking about they had some sort of hidden mystery from God. Anytime someone tells you that they can hear the mysteries of God and that you have to go to them to get that mystery, you can kind of back away and say to yourself, you know what, this is a little strange. We can't take mystery and mystify it. God is the one who created the mystery. He's the one who, 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 he is the one who reveals the mystery, amen? Let me read to you a scripture in Colossians chapter 1. You don't have to turn there. We'll go through this fast. Colossians chapter 1, 25 through 26. I want you to see what the apostle Paul excuse me, what the Apostle Paul is saying. He says this, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. Uh, I want to just stop right there. I want you to notice something. He says, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. In other words, Paul says, I am not the originator of the mystery. I am simply stewarding something. I don't own it. You, an owner owns, a steward manages what the owner owns. And so when you're a steward of the house, it's not your house, but you're managing the house while the owner is away. And Paul is saying, the mystery of God, I'm stewarding. I'm not creating something new. I'm not creating a, something different. Uh, what I'm simply doing is revealing to you what God has given to me. Are you with me? Paul's relaying a message, not creating a message. And he continues. He says, God, um, I'll read from the beginning. I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me. Here it is. To make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. I love that. The mystery that has been hidden from generation to generation, but is now being revealed to his saints. You and I are his saints. Amen. And so let me tell you three elements about mystery. Three elements about mystery. Number one, the mystery of the kingdom of God can be paradoxical, but it is not contradictory. This is so important. The mystery of the kingdom of God, it can be paradoxical, but it is not contradictory. Can I just make a statement? Just because we can't make sense of some things doesn't automatically make them untrue or unreal. Do you know that? Just because you can't make sense of some things doesn't automatically make them untrue or unreal. It could just mean that they are unrevealed. And this is what the New Testament does for the Old Testament. What was once vague and incomplete now becomes clear and whole. And so we don't throw the Old Testament away because the Old Testament is the building block. It, it introduces us to things, but the New Testament comes in and reveals what the Old Testament was vaguely and dimly saying. Are you with me? Now we know in this room that there are still some mysteries that do puzzle us, amen? The Trinity is a mystery, right? God's three in oneness. That doesn't make sense. God, and, and, and we do our best to try to explain and use analogies, and, and we do our best, but even then our best explanations still fall at the feet. And they, and they feel like, man, we're getting close. And here's another thing is sometimes when we try to overexplain a mystery, we fall into heresy. We have to receive this walk of faith. Sometimes God calls us to walk into a place of the unknown and, the un, and, and we can't see it and make sense of it, but God is still asking us to walk into it. Wow. Amen? Amen? How about this? 
the incarnation of Christ is a mystery. How can he be fully man and fully God? On the other hand, there are some mysteries that have been made clear. We become great by becoming small. We are exalted through humility. We become wise by becoming fools for Christ. We are made strong when we are weak. We find death in life. We triumph in defeat and we glory in suffering. Mysteries never make sense in the moment, but once fully revealed, we can look back and say, now I see what I didn't see before. Mysteries never make sense in the moment. But when we look back and they've been revealed, we can say to ourselves, ah, now I see what I didn't see before. Remember, number one, the kingdom of God, the mystery of the kingdom of God, it's paradoxical. Mystery is paradoxical, but not contradictory. Number two, and this is, uh, it's kind of sad. It's kind of sad. There's some encouragement and discouragement in number two. When it comes to the mysteries of God, some will see, many will miss. Some will see it, many will miss it. Now, I'm not sure if this will surprise you, but when I found this out, it surprised me. Why did Jesus tell parables? If you are a good, if you're an intelligent individual, you might say, well, illustrated stories helped make the story more understandable. But can I show you in Scripture, in Jesus' words, one of the main reasons why he told parables? Let's look at Luke chapter 8, verse 10. Again, these are going to be quick here, so you don't necessarily have to turn. Luke chapter 8, verse 10 says this. He said, referring to Jesus, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables. You ready for the shocking part? So that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Let's go to Matthew 13, 13. This is why I speak to them in parables. This is what Jesus is saying. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And finally, Mark chapter 4, 11 through 12 Again, and he said to them, this is Jesus speaking, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. And then Jesus will quote the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. They may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. These are some tough sayings. Let me explain them to you. When describing the kingdom, Jesus would tell parables in public, but give explanations in private. The crowds would get illustrated stories, but the disciples would have the luxury of the Messiah breaking the stories down. Let me explain something to you. This is the beauty, and this is the difference between discipleship and attendance. You see, I want to be a disciple of Christ. I want to be a follower of Christ. I don't want to be on the outside looking in. I want to know the mysteries of God. I want to position myself, position my mind, position my soul and my heart to not miss the kingdom of God. And a lot of times, crowds would gather to listen to Jesus. Now, I'm not talking to the unsaved. I'm even talking to the church. They would come in and they would gather to hear a powerful, impactful word. They would see signs and miracles and he would even multiply bread. But in the end, they were just crowds. And he spoke to them in parables, but they did not hear, and they did not see, and they did not understand. And it wasn't until the disciples who were close to him in proximity would walk with him outside of the crowd and would walk closely to him. And it was in those moments of closeness where they would say, Jesus, what does this mean? And he said, well, let me tell you because it has been given to you. 
Jesus, I want to be, I don't want to be in the crowd. I want to be a disciple. I don't want Sunday mornings to be enough for me. I want to be a follower of Christ. I want to be in the community of Christ. I want to serve in the kingdom of Christ. I don't want to miss it. Because the reality is, is some will see, but many will miss. Here's something. Can I tell you something unfortunate about the nature of God's truth? This is unfortunate, but it's true. Many times, God's truth will actually provoke unbelief. Humanity is so corrupt with sin. Did you know that we are so corrupt with sin that the truth can actually become repulsive rather than attractive? How many times have you sat down with yourself, someone, or maybe you've encountered yourself, or maybe a close friend, or even a son or a daughter, and you gave them truth, but they repulsed at it because for them it was unattractive? Just because it's not attractive doesn't mean that it's not truth. I know that's simple, but I I wish we would raise up disciples in this place that would know that just because it's attractive doesn't mean it's truth. Are you with me? You know what Romans chapter 1 says? It says, man, you are without excuse. Romans chapter 1 says, all of mankind is without excuse. You want to know why? He says this. The stars, the moon, and the sun preach a sermon to you. All of creation declares that there is something greater than it. And yet we try to use science and and, and we try to use, not even science, because science is beautiful, but we try to use theories within science to cause doubt and debate, to debunk. And God is saying, man, you are without excuse because when you walk outside and you see the greatness of what's around you, it causes you to say there must be something greater. There must be something greater. And so you know what he says? He says, man doesn't have a knowledge problem. We have a truth problem. And so what he says is is that we suppress the truth in Romans chapter 1. This is heavy, but I want you to hear this. There are many people who will not believe. And if you speak the truth, the truth will cause them to stumble even further into disbelief. Now, as difficult as this statement is to make... As a follower of Christ, it should also cause us to be guided and thankful. As difficult as that statement was, it should cause us to be guided and thankful. Let me tell you why. Number one, knowing that there are some, when confronted with the truth, that will only harden their hearts. This should cause us to be, please write, guided or remember this, guided in our witness. Guided in our witness. What do I mean by that? Did you know that only the Holy Spirit can open blind eyes? Did you know that your success in evangelism is not based upon whether someone receives or rejects Jesus? Did you know that? Did you know that your success in evangelism is not based upon whether you led someone to Christ or whether you did it? Your success is not based on whether they receive or they reject. Only the Holy Spirit can open blind eyes. So here's the question. How do I know I'm being successful when you're being obedient? He's not calling you to force someone to change. He's not calling you to force someone to receive Christ. Only he can cause blind eyes to be opened. What he is calling you is to be the vehicle and the instrument of obedience. And that you would go out there and you would share the gospel and you would be the gospel. Success in evangelism is not a matter of whether someone receives or rejects Jesus. It's the matter of your being obedient. There are some of you in here today that are frustrated or discouraged because you felt like you failed because maybe your brother or your sister or someone close to you hasn't listened to the gospel. I want to tell you you haven't failed. Maybe you've planted a seed. Maybe you've watered a seed. But it's your, not, your job is not to bring the increase. Your job is not to bring the increase. 
You can be on your deathbed and in your casket, and that day, Jesus could say, that seed that was watered, they'll come to know Christ. You may never see it in your lifetime, but God will do it in his own time. Only the Holy Spirit brings increase. So let me just release you from feeling like I was having a great conversation. You know, sometimes we sit with somebody and we feel like we got to get them to love Jesus, come to church, commit to serve teams. We feel like we got to do all of this in order for them to be faithful in the Lord. And, you know, sometimes the Lord's saying, well, wait a minute, slow down. If you do all that, you're going to scare them away. Here's what I want you to do. I want them to see the beauty of Christ. I want them to see the beauty of me and my kingdom. And so will you be guided in your witness? Will you pray, Lord, am I watering a seed? Am I, am, I, am, I, am, I, am I watering the seed? Am I planting the seed? What part do I play? And help me to trust your spirit. This will alleviate a lot of stress, amen? All right. So number one, we should be guided in our witness, yeah? And then the last one is we should be, it should cause us to be thankful and humble. We need to get this so bad. Seeing Jesus and seeing his gospel clearly is a gift. Do you think about that statement? Seeing Jesus and knowing his gospel clearly is a gift. What do I mean by that? I want you to know, Philip, me, I am as corrupt as anyone else. My sins are just as ugly as anybody else's. There's nothing spectacular or special about me. It's only by God's grace that my eyes have been opened to receive as truth what so many others reject. Therefore, you should not be arrogant or prideful in your love for Christ. We should not look down on people who do not know him or open their eyes to your capacity. It is a gift. And if we forget that it is a gift, then we become religious, legalistic arrogance. And we pick people apart because they're not where they're supposed to be. But if you stay humble and you realize it's a gift, you'll understand that you are no better than anybody else. And that you have simply been a recipient of the grace and the Holy Spirit has opened your eyes. And now your prayers change. Lord, open their eyes too. You with me? Mystery, number one, paradoxical, not contradictory. Number two, some will see, but many will miss. And number three, and this is most importantly, Jesus is both the revealer and the revelation of mystery. Jesus is both the revealer and revelation of mystery. Let me explain. Jesus is the revealer in that the kingdom of God was inaugurated at his appearance. All those things that God kept secret, that God kept hidden, Jesus now reveals to the world and especially to his disciples. And this is my favorite. He's not just revealer, but he is the revelation. The kingdom wasn't made known just through his teaching and preaching, but Jesus is himself the king of the kingdom. He wasn't just a good teacher. He wasn't just a faithful prophet, but he literally was the embodiment of the kingdom. It wasn't just what he said that revealed the kingdom. It wasn't just what he did that revealed the kingdom. It wasn't what he just preached that revealed the kingdom, but it was who he was. Jesus is the king of the kingdom. He is the embodiment of the kingdom. He's not just a good man or a good prophet. He's the king of the kingdom. So now that we have an understanding of mystery, we can answer the question, what is the mystery of the kingdom of God? This is a two-part answer. And the first answer is this. The mystery of the kingdom of God is the reality of the unexpected king. The reality of the unexpected king. And we'll finish and conclude with the second one that I'll explain. Is this the mystery of the kingdom of God is the fact that it's already but not yet. 
It's already, but it's not yet. So two things I'm going to talk about before we finish. Number one, the reality of the unexpected king and the fact that it is already, but not yet. Let's talk about the reality of the unexpected king. I want you to know Israel waited for their Messiah. And they waited for a Messiah that would come in power, a Messiah that would come in victory and triumph, a Messiah who would perform spectacular and grand signs and wonders and miracles. They waited for a powerful, triumphant, spectacular Messiah. After all, God only does things big. But instead, they got someone who hardly fit their expectations. <laughs> they anticipated a ruler who would gather his armies and overthrow Rome. Instead, they got a peasant carpenter with no money and zero political capital. They anticipated a powerful prophet who performed spectacular signs on demand. But instead, they got a man named Jesus who was telling them that God's Messiah was a suffering servant who would be crucified on a cross. What a contradiction. There's nothing powerful about that. God's Messiah meant power. He meant triumph. He meant glory. Crucifixion means weakness. It means defeat. It means a curse. No God would ever do such a thing. And besides, who would ever want to follow a God that would be crucified? Yet this is the glory of our God hidden inside of the beauty of the unexpected king. What they got was nothing like what they expected. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. If you have your apps, you can go there. Um, if not, we provide, it for up to, uh, we provide it up here. But if you could follow along, I would love for you to do so. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. What they got was nothing like what they expected. Are you ready? Look at what Paul writes to the Corinthian church. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. You know what he's saying? The word of the cross is foolish. It's, some of you don't like this word. It's stupid to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, listen to what God says. I feel like he's boasting in this. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Whereas the debater of this age has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Now look, for the Jews demand signs. He says the Jews demand spectacles and miracles. They always want God to prove it, prove it, show me, heal me, let me see something big. He says, for the Jews demand signs. Now, ready, you ready for this? Because we inherit this, especially as Americans. And the Greeks seek wisdom. They want knowledge. They want logic. They want explanation. They want it all to make sense before they believe. But look what Paul says. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jew and Greek, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. 
And so they wanted spectacular signs or they wanted it to be broken down in theory and reason and logic. And God said, I'm going to make the wise foolish. And so the mystery of the kingdom of God, the first revelation of the mystery is that it's the mystery of the unexpected king. The Messiah came in a way they didn't expect him to come. Number two. It's the reality of the already but not yet. Doesn't that sound contradictory? How is something already but not yet? Mystery. (laughs) This is difficult to understand, but here we go. The kingdom of God is both simultaneously present and future. And I'm going to really need you guys to kind of buckle down with me for a second to hear me out, and then we'll conclude. When Jesus entered into human history, he immediately initiated or inaugurated the kingdom of God. Are you with me? In fact, he told Jewish leaders this, the kingdom of God is among you. Now, sometimes we define it as the kingdom of God is what? Inside of you. But if we want to look at those scriptures and the Greek appropriately, the right translation should be the kingdom of God is among you. And what Jesus was saying is that the king of the kingdom is here and in your what? In your midst. Now, I want you to see this. In Jesus, the future made its way to the present. This is a beautiful thing. While Jesus was here, he cast out demons, and he healed every manner of sickness. And did you know that every time we read in Scripture about Jesus casting out demons or healing the sick, do you know what's taking place? Every time you see in Scripture Jesus casting out demons or healing the sick, did you know that you're reading about holy war? Do you know that? I I have to come a little closer for you guys. You see, the crusaders got it wrong. Christians throughout history have gotten it wrong. Other religions have gotten holy war wrong. See, we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. Our weapons of our warfare, they're not carnal. But they are mighty for pulling down strongholds. Every time you read in scripture, Jesus casting out a demon or healing sickness, what you're reading is warfare. A holy war. And you know what's really cool? In the the Hebrew thought... The demonic and sickness were one and the same. In the Hebrew thought, the way that they thought, they believed that the demonic, the possession, and the sickness were one and the same. And so that's why when you read Jesus declaring the kingdom, partnering with the kingdom being declared as people getting healed and demons being cast out. You'll see it all the time. And when you read that, and I'm emphasizing, I've said it several times, you're reading holy war. You see, Jesus... When he came, he waged war not against Rome, not against Caesar, but against Satan, sin, and the kingdom of darkness. Now, this is really important to this point. Death, are you ready for this? Death was Satan's final stronghold and man's final enemy. So when Jesus resurrected, in the resurrection... What we see is Jesus triumphing over the enemy's final place of power. This is how the paradox of the already but not yet becomes reality. Are you ready? Here it is. Jesus initiates the resurrection. And the resurrection is already present because it has already been done. Therefore, our future resurrection is guaranteed now. Jesus initiated the resurrection. And since he already did it, he already destroyed the enemy. Therefore, our resurrection is present right now. There's no more question about death for a believer. Those who would repent and believe this gospel of the kingdom, this foolish gospel, will live with Christ forever. This is the mystery revealed. Ready for this? Our resurrection 
is not yet, but the resurrection is already. Our resurrection is not yet, but the resurrection is already. And because of that, we're guaranteed to be raised if we repent and believe. And I can't stress this, I can't stress this part enough. This is so huge. This is a discipleship moment right here. Please, this is the part I really want you to hear me out. Our entire lives as believers is an existence in the tension of the already but not yet. In fact, we're getting ready to dismiss. If I could have the team just prepare themselves and if you could come up, sis, and play a little bit. But can you guys hear me out here? If you're a believer this morning, if you're a follower of Christ, amen, our entire lives as believers is an existence in the tension of the already but not yet. Can you feel that tension? Don't you wrestle with your faith in that tension? This is going to be breakthrough for some of you in here this morning. We live not in between the times but in both times. We know Christ has already purchased our healing, but yet we still ache with sickness. We have already passed from death to life, but we still die. We've already been acquitted of all of our sin, but we still pray daily, Father, forgive us. We already have our citizenship in the kingdom of God, but must still submit in measure to the rulers of this world. Every blessing in Christ is already ours. But God wills for us to come into our inheritance in patience and promise. God wills for us to come into our inheritance in patience and in promise. Are there any history buffs in the room? Anybody like history? No. <laughs> Any documentary fans? Anybody like watching documentaries? Netflix actually has a really good documentary on the Vietnam War that my wife and I have been watching uh, really deep. Um, but how many of you know what, what we commemorate on June 16th, 1944? You see, our, our generation has passed. But we call a generation the greatest generation because we commemorate June 16th, 1944, D-Day. It was the day that the allies band together and they put the nail in the coffin on the Nazis. They stormed a beach called Normandy and they set up five strategic beachheads. And they established these beachheads in the stronghold. They broke the back of the Nazi regime. But did you know that there's also something called V-Day? You know, V-Day is called Victory, yeah. the Day of Victory. And you know that was May 8th, 1945. You know that there was 11 months difference between D-Day and V-Day. You know D-Day happened first, but can I tell you something that was powerful about D-Day? Once D-Day occurred, it guaranteed V-Day was coming. Once the Nazis were destroyed in Normandy, once that we, the Allies, had set beachheads in their strongholds, it wasn't a matter of if, it was only a matter of when. You see, that day that we commemorate as D-Day is the day that we won the war, but we had 11 more months of, fi of fighting. Are you with me? This is how the New Testament sees the kingdom of God. This is how the New Testament sees the kingdom of God because the king established a beachhead on the stronghold of the enemy and broke his back. D-Day has been celebrated and because the king has done what the king was supposed to do, we now live in a time of victory. Sure, we still die. We still get sick. Sure, we still live in this tension. But here's the reality. 11 months from D-Day to V-Day, we already knew we won. We had to just enter into, hear me out. We had to enter into the mop-up process. For those 11 months, the military men still died. They still fought battles. 
But they died and fought battles knowing that the victory had already been won. Now it was time to mop these guys up. The New Testament calls the Christian to live in that reality. You will still die. You will still fight battles. But what is it to us knowing that our resurrection is already guaranteed? What is it to us knowing that our salvation is secure? What is it to us knowing that our king has already established his kingdom? What is it to us? And so though we die, we die in victory. And though you may be sick in body, though mama may be sick in body, she's worshiping God because she knows, she knows the war has already been won. And you and I are invited to fight the good fight. We're inspired by those Christians who pass in glory. And we hope that that day that we're on our deathbed, we would be able to have that same hope that they have. We take the mantle, amen. And we say, saints, your fight has been fought. It's our time to fight. And though we die and though we battle, we have been invited to be a part of the mop-up process. And so we establish the kingdom of God everywhere we go. (laughs) And can I tell you something? The goal isn't to defeat the enemy. He's defeated. The goal is to plunder his goods. We plunder his goods. And we go into every encampment that's his. And though he tries to threaten us with death, resurrection is guaranteed. And we take what the enemy has stolen and we bring it back for the king. And we present it to Jesus. And we present it. You know what the, you know what the treasure is? It's not money. It's not fame. It's not fortune. It's not popularity. It's not the biggest church with the biggest name. It's not to be the greatest pastor. I want to be on YouTube so everyone can hear me. It's not popularity. It's none of that. The reward is... The reward of the king's suffering. And you know what that is? That's people. People plucked out of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light. Amen. So we win. We win in rejoicing. We win in suffering. We win if we live. We win if we die. Winning has already been settled. This is the beauty of the church. And you know what I recognize? Some of us have been hurt by the church or we have a misunderstanding of the church. But can I invite you to see the beauty of Christ's church? The beauty of the broken church, the imperfect church, the quarreling, fighting church. Can I share with you the beauty? Because sometimes we look at the church and we just don't think it's beautiful. But here's what Jesus sees. The beauty of the church is that Christ has called us to live out the future in the present age. To battle through our faith tensions of the already but not yet. We may look crazy. We may look unorthodox. We may not make sense. We may never really fit in. We are not what the world wants because our desires have nothing to do with this present age. Our faith, our values, our thinking, our desires have nothing to do with this present age, but everything to do with the future age to come. And so you and I will be persecuted. We will be hated, but we will still lay down our lives in love because we know Christ has called us to be in this mop-up process. And we'll plunder the devil together here in the Bay Area. I think the one thing that the Lord's just putting on my heart right now, and I believe this is where he might be leading this morning, is just that tension of the already but not yet, and how in that there's so much fight, so much struggle. But I want you to know that there's a beautiful process being that's taking place. There's a, you're being conformed into the image of Christ and some people are healed and some people aren't and, and you celebrate with others as they're pain-free and you still battle your pain and we, and we live in and out of these tensions but I just want you to know that there is a plan and a purpose to your pain and it's to bring glory to his name. And some people will bring God glory in healing some people will bring God glory in death and in sickness. And we know 
We look forward to a future day when the king will come back and the inauguration will turn into consummation. And what will, and things that we've experienced only in part and that we, we long for more, we'll finally be able to experience in whole and in glory with him. And because he resurrected, he guarantees this. And so please don't put your hope in a prayer. Because if you don't get healed, you may find yourself hopeless. Don't put your hope in a man or a woman because they will fail you. A pastor or a leader, trust me, I'll fail you. But let us put our hope in Christ. Let us put our hope in Christ. So Heavenly Father, I pray for everyone here just visiting. I pray for inspired church, those that are a part of this family and this mission, those of us that are maybe wandering in our purpose, feeling unsure, insecure. Will we just have kingdom mindset about things? Will we see things through the lenses of the kingdom? I pray for anyone that's feeling pressure. Your pressure, you're feeling pressure. I don't know what that pressure is could be many things that you're feeling pressure. I just pray that the kingdom would rest upon you. That you would know that God has things in his hands, in life and in death, sickness and in health. <laughs> it sounds like marriage vows, but really we're married to Christ. Till death was part. And in death, we'll get closer to Jesus. So I pray right now that this church would grow in faith. We'd grow in evangelism. We'd grow in kingdom mindset. We grow in love for one another and for God. Pray that your name would be glorified. The gospel will be made clear in the Bay Area and in the world. Invigorate our passion. Motivate us to more. And be with us, Holy Spirit, and guide us everywhere we go. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen, amen. God bless you guys. Have a beautiful Kingdom Sunday, Wednesday Theology of Coffee, and next Sunday we'll be back for our second part. Amen. God bless you.